All right, well, you're there in the book of Isaiah, and in this chapter, in chapter number 7, we have a very famous verse in verse number 14, where the Bible says, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now go over to Matthew chapter number 1, where we will see this scripture fulfilled in the New Testament of a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a son. Matthew chapter number 1. In verse number 18, says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David... Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and called his name Jesus. So here we've got the famous story of the Virgin Mary conceiving and giving birth to Jesus Christ. Now, we just were focused a lot on this passage here in the parallel passages in uh, the book of Luke, because we just came out of the Christmas season where we reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ. Tonight, I want to talk about the Virgin Mary, because while we as Baptists don't really focus a lot on her and think a lot about her, she is probably next to God the biggest feature or biggest person that Catholics focus on. And I want to go through and look at what Catholics believe about her and then compare that next to the Bible and show where they're wrong and where some of the mistakes are that they make. So I went on, just like there's a JW.org, I found a Catholic.org that just kind of has a big archive of different searches. And I searched and just read a lot of stuff about uh, what they have to say about the Virgin Mary. Because when you go out soul winning and you knock on a door of a Catholic, there's, there's usually two different kinds of people that you can encounter when they say they're a Catholic. One that's basically just your Christmas and Easter Catholic that just kind of goes to church every once in a while and goes to Mass, and they just think that getting into heaven is based off of being a good person, following Ten Commandments, basic stuff like that. Then there's your devout Catholics that don't come right out and say they believe in work salvation. They'll actually profess some form of a faith alone salvation, but they later on, you can get down to it, and they are mixing works in there. So I, I don't believe that Catholics are saved at all. And I want to look at one of the major errors that they make in the Virgin Mary. Now, obviously, I don't think that Mary's a bad person in any way, shape, or form. She was very righteous, and she had to have been of some form of importance if God chose her above anybody else to give birth to Jesus Christ. I think that's something important. But I also don't think that we need to make a bigger deal out of things than they're made out to be in the Bible. So the first thing that I wanted to show, go over to Luke chapter number 1. Luke chapter number 1. We were just in Matthew. 
But Luke chapter number 1, the Catholics reference this on their website, and this is one of the quotes that I got out of there. It says, Mary's life and role in the history of salvation is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, which is what we just read in Isaiah chapter number 7. It says, while the events of her life were recorded in the New Testament, traditionally she was declared the daughter of St. Joachim and Anne, born in Jerusalem, Mary was presented in the temple and took a vow of virginity. Living in Nazareth, Mary was visited by the archangel Gabriel, excuse me, who announced to her that she would become the mother of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. She became betrothed to St. Joseph and went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was bearing St. John the Baptist. Acknowledged by Elizabeth as the mother of God, Mary intoned the Magnificent. So, in Luke chapter 26, we have this reference where Mary is mentioned as they claim the mother of God, but it doesn't say mother of God word for word. But let's just look at this because this is where they're getting all this stuff from in the Bible. So Luke chapter number one and look down in verse number 26 and we'll see this story. It says, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, a spouse man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary arose in those days and went in the hill of a country with haste into a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out in a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord." So right here, we've got the example that they're referencing where they're saying that Elizabeth refers to her as the mother of God. Now, that happens in verse number 43, where it says, And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, they make a big deal about the fact that she's the mother of God, and I'm going to get into that in a second. Um, but here, it doesn't say word for word, mother of God, but it says mother of my Lord, which the thing is, she's referring to Jesus Christ, which is God, so... You know, I'll just give it to them. You know, they, I'll get into a little bit of what exactly they're teaching there. They're not teaching what you might think, because what I initially thought is that she was like, they were believing that she was someone from eternity also, and that she had some role of actually 
creating Jesus or something like that, but the Catholics don't believe that. But we'll get into that for a second. But also, the person that leaps for joy and the person that is making the biggest deal is actually John the Baptist that's in her womb, and he's not leaping for joy because of Mary. He's leaping for joy because of Jesus Christ that's in Mary's womb. So the focus of this passage, although it's about Mary, it's about Jesus Christ. Because the reason that Mary's special here doesn't have anything to do with the fact that she's just so righteous and that she is favored among women. While from this passage you could get those things and those things could be true, what made her special is the fact that she's the virgin that gave birth to Jesus Christ, which is the Son of God. It's Jesus that makes her special. It's not her by her own works or by her own things that she does that makes her special. Now, we're going to stay in Luke chapter number one, but the second quote that I got gets into the Catholic dogma that we get into that lists out four specific doctrines. And we're going to spend most of our time on these four doctrines that they teach about Mary. So right here, this quote says, Pope Pius the seventh declared this belief Catholic dogma in 1950. The four Catholic dogmas are mother of God, perpetual virginity of Mary, the immaculate conception and the assumption of Mary. The feast of assumption is celebrated on August 15th. The assumption was the bodily taking up of the Virgin Mary into heaven at the end of her earthly life. According to Pope Pius VII, the Virgin Mary having completed the course of her earthly life was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. Now, that's a wild teaching, okay? Teaching that Mary, just like Enoch was and just like Elijah was, basically had her own separate rapture where she's taken up to heaven. Now, that's the last thing that's on this list of these four different doctrines, and I'll get to that in a second. But that just shows you how far is an example that these people were taking it in terms of elevating Mary higher than she actually is. So the first point that they make is that she is the mother of God. Now, my initial reaction that I thought they were teaching here, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, is kind of like saying that she's the mother of God, acting like I thought they might have thought she had some reference in eternity, that she wasn't a created being like all of us humans are, but she was different than that, and like she was something, she wasn't just a normal person. I thought that's what they might have meant, but I read multiple different articles regarding this subject, and they don't believe that. What their point is, is just that she is the physical woman that gave birth to Jesus Christ when he was on earth. Therefore, being the mother of God because Jesus is God. They don't make it out to be some weird thing like she is the creator above God, of God. Just the simple fact that she gave birth to Jesus Christ. I don't know if there might be some other random Catholic out there that takes it further than that. But if they don't take it further than that... To be honest, I don't have a huge problem with that because it's kind of just stating a fact. I think it's making a big deal out of something that isn't really meant to be made a big deal out of, but I'll give it to him because of what we read there where Elizabeth refers to her as the mother of my Lord, referring to Jesus Christ, which is God. So it's kind of a, you know, a long trail that you're going down there. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it. The important thing to realize is that this isn't Mary creating Jesus or Jesus isn't a created being. Jesus is from eternity and he was just, he came into this world through Mary. The Bible says, don't worry about turning there. In Hebrews chapter number 10, verses 5 and 6, it says, 
Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Jesus already existed, and the body that's formed in Mary's womb is a body that was conceived by the Holy Ghost. Jesus had that body prepared for him. He entered into it when he came into the world. It's a big, you know, crazy thing that we are not going to be able to comprehend as people because we're created beings. Jesus was different than that. But Mary is not a mother like my wife is a mother to my son and my daughter. It's different than that because my son and my daughter were created between us and obviously God giving them life. Jesus is life. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the son of God that came through Mary. But it's not Mary that generated that body. It's the Holy Ghost that conceived that through her. Now, the second thing is, which that's that's just kind of a statement that she's the mother of God. They don't really take that into a major doctrine. The second thing they do, though, is they teach that Mary was perpetually a virgin, that she's a virgin when she gives birth to Jesus Christ, which everybody believes. If you don't believe that, that's heresy. But then they teach that after the fact of Jesus Christ, she remained a virgin for the rest of her life. Now go to Matthew chapter number 13. Matthew chapter number 13 And this is a passage that I've heard here referenced multiple times to debunk this teaching, and I agree with it 100%, but I'll show you their argument because they're not just unaware that this passage exists. They have an argument for it. But Matthew chapter number 13, towards the end of the chapter, look to verse number 54. Jesus has just got done preaching and doing all these other things in a different place, And then he departed from that area, and he went back to the area where he was from, back to his own country. And in verse number 54, it says, And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own house, in in his own country, and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. But notice, these are scoffers that come along, and they're saying, How in the world is Jesus doing these things? We know this guy. He's not some crazy, he's not of some crazy significance. He's Joseph's son. He's Mary's son. Look, these are his brothers. They're just normal people. Where's all this wisdom coming from? They're, they're perplexed by this, but they're also not taking him seriously because they know him as the little child Jesus and they thought that he was just like everybody else, but he obviously wasn't. Now that alone should debunk the idea that Mary remained a virgin forever because there's Uh, four different kids there that are referred to as Jesus' brothers in the context of listing out his actual family members. They list out Joseph as his father, they list out Mary as his mother, and then they list out his brothers. These are not believers here, like we would refer to people in this room as our brothers and sisters. These are unbelievers listing out his family and different people within his family. Catholics will teach that it's not talking about that. People refer to each other as brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so. 
But that is an absolutely ridiculous teaching to get from this when you look at the context of that they're listing out actual family members. I believe this is crystal clear talking about his physical brothers and sisters that came between Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born, obviously. Now, here's the main Catholic argument that I saw that they tried to use the Bible for. Go to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, where we have Jesus on the cross. He's dying. And we know that Mary in this segment is recorded as being there, seeing him on the cross. And in John chapter number 19, in verse number 25, it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her unto his own home. Now here's what the Catholics will get out of this. They'll say, look, because we've got specific references of these people, uh, like James, who write, later writes an epistle after Jesus dies, and they'll say, if those were his physical brothers and sisters, and they were still alive, it shouldn't have been John's responsibility to take care of her. It should have been his physical brothers and sisters' responsibility to take care of her. Now, here's my opinion on this. First of all, what happened to Joseph? You know, they, they don't have an answer for that. They just assume because Jesus said that John should take her that Joseph is dead. Now, it's possible that Joseph's dead. And let's just say for the sake of this hypothetical that I'm giving that Joseph died. Here's why I believe Jesus told John to take uh, Mary in this situation. Because think about the context of what's going on right now. Jesus is being crucified for... They're claiming that he's being crucified for blasphemy, that he's teaching that he's the son of God, he's a terrible person, and they just want him dead. They also don't want anything to do with anyone that associates with him. Think back to Peter denying him multiple times to the point where he's cursing and swearing, saying, I don't know him, I never knew him, when he's the one that moments before said he would never deny him. So this is a serious thing to be associated with someone like that. And we know that from other passages that Jesus' brothers and sisters at the time of his life were not believers also. They did the same thing where they didn't receive him because of his country. So here's why I believe that he told John to look after her because her and John would both be on the same page in being with Jesus, believing that Jesus was the son of God which would have made them criminals in that society. They would have been people that they wouldn't have wanted anything to do with. They could have also been in trouble for their support of Jesus. So it would make more sense for John to take care of her than a physical brother and sister in that time that's an unbeliever because they could have easily turned her in because Jesus also warned about uh, children rising up against their parents and he could have had the idea at that time, and it could have happened at that time, that if the physical brothers and sisters took care of her, they could have actually turned her in and gotten her in some kind of trouble, and she could have ended up on the cross. You know, we don't know. But that's my personal opinion on that. But I've got one more proof text that I think nails it way out of there. Go back to Matthew chapter number 1. There's the part where we list all of them, 
But look in Matthew chapter number 1, the very last verse of there. We just read it a second ago. Matthew chapter number 1 in verse number 25. Well, actually, go back to verse 24 so we can see it. It says, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So it's not saying he never knew her. It's saying he didn't know her, meaning that he didn't take her virginity away until after Jesus Christ was brought forward. Basically, crystal clear saying he eventually knew her. That's what that's saying there. And really, I think this is just one of these pet doctrines that Catholics have created to try to lift Mary up, to make her higher than she actually is. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's robbing glory from God to lift her up higher than God or on the same level with God. Jesus wasn't robbing God of any glory because he is God and he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. But putting Mary at the same level of God, it's not Mary's fault that people worship her, but they are giving her way too much power and way too much glory when really all she was, though it's special and though it's an amazing thing, all she was was the virgin that gave birth to Jesus Christ, which is a crazy thing. It's a great thing, and it's a special thing that only one person in the history of the world can say, but that's all she was. She was just the virgin. She was highly favored among women. She was blessed. All people said that the fruit of her womb was, of her womb was blessed. She was special, but she's not like a deity-like figure like the Catholics make her out to be. Now, I want to go on to a, the last two that we brought on here. And these are just some of the more bizarre claims that the Catholics uh, give out here. So go to Romans chapter number 5. We'll get to that in a second. Romans chapter number 5. But the third thing is, is they teach immaculate conception. Now, what does immaculate conception mean? Well, I'm going to read a segment that I got from a website called Catholic Answers. They, since they're a big denomination, they've got all these big websites and can really answer a lot of your questions about things that they honestly believe. So uh, go to Romans chapter 5, but they basically teach that Mary was sinless and that she never sinned from birth, that when she was born, she never sinned and never committed any form of sin at all. And I'll get into that in a second of some extra things they teach with that. But I'll read this quote from you from CatholicAnswers.com. It says, It's important to understand what the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is and what it is not. Some people think the term refers to Christ's conception in Mary's womb without the intervention of a human father, but that is the virgin birth. Others think the Immaculate Conception means that Mary was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the way Jesus was, but that too is incorrect. The Immaculate Conception means that Mary, whose conception was brought about the normal way, was conceived without original sin or its stain. That's what Immaculate means, without stain. The essence of original sin consists in the deprivation of sanctifying grace, and its stain is a corrupt nature. Mary was preserved from these defects by God's grace from the first instant of her existence, she was in the state of sanctifying grace and was free from the corrupt nature original sin, sin brings. So they're basically saying that like all of us, we have a sin nature. We're guilty of sin. 
it's just a fact that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Catholics don't believe that Mary ever sinned, that she ever sinned, and they don't believe she was capable of sin, just like we don't believe Jesus was capable of sin. Now, here's the example, because there, there was a straw man argument that they brought up that people say here, which when you're teaching something as wild that a normal person is sinless, you know, if you get a straw man argument thrown your way, that's your problem. That's not the person that brings up this argument. But they said that by teaching that, uh, that some might think that they're saying that Mary didn't need God to save her. Their argument is, and they, they used an example of God saving us, is like all of us walking along the path fall into a pit and need God to lift us out so we can be saved. Well, their argument is that with Mary, it's like he just steered her in a different direction before she even fell into the pit, which would have been sin and condemning her to hell, and then she just never went back to that way at all. Now, look, folks, this is a bizarre teaching. She is conceived the same way that everybody else is. She's not conceived in a different way. She's not sinless. Now, their argument here, the verse that they use, this is the best verse that they could find out. And in the original, just laying out the doctrine, they had no scripture verses at all because this is not a doctrine that comes from the Bible. This is just something that a pope came up with at one point in time, and they elevate the pope so highly that it doesn't matter what stupid thing he says or what heresy he teaches, they believe that he's basically the direct line in between them and God which is, again, robbing the glory from Jesus Christ and giving it to a man who, let's just be honest, is usually a freak anyways. Popes lately have been terrible, especially the one that's in there now. He's a wicked, evil person. And to give that guy the glory that Jesus Christ deserves is just insane. All right, but the best verse they could come up with was Luke chapter 1, which we were in earlier, and it says, and the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. See, she's sinless. No, that does not say that at all. But what does the Bible actually say here? So we all know Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't believe Mary's exempt from that. But look in chapter number 5 where we get a little bit more doctrine about all men being sinners except one man, which was Jesus Christ. So Romans chapter number 5, starting in verse number 12, a lot of people use this verse out soul winning. It says, Wherefore, as by one man, referring to Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Notice it says, one man, Jesus Christ. It's not about the sinlessness and the perfection of one man and his virgin mother. It's about one man, Jesus Christ. Keep on reading. It's in verse number 16. It says, And not as it was one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, 
Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gifts came upon all men under justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I was thinking while I was reading this, and I didn't see a place that they perpetually said this, that they just word for word said it, that Mary needed to be a virgin, and not needed to be a virgin, she obviously needed to be a virgin, but that for some reason she would need to be perfect and without sin in any way in order to conceive Jesus Christ. I thought that's what they were implying, and I think that's what they were implying, but they didn't just come right out and say it. Well, here's the thing. If you need to be sinless in order to give birth to someone else that's sinless, hypothetical Mary is sinless. And she's without sin. That means that her parents had to be without sin too. And it's just going to go back and back and back and back forever that those parents needed to be without sins. And you just have a whole generation of people. And the funny thing is, Mary's generation is written out in the Bible. And we can look back at it and we can see those people. And they were guilty of some pretty bad sins in the Old Testament. So her lineage is not from a sinless family. She was not sinless. This is a bizarre teaching And it does not come from anywhere in the Bible. This is how she was righteous enough to fulfill the Isaiah chapter 7 prophecy. She was a virgin. She was highly favored among women. But the reason that Mary is so special and the reason that she's so important is because of her son. Not because of her and all the wonderful, amazing things that she did in her life. But it's because of what Jesus Christ eventually did on the cross that made her so special. So that's a pretty crazy thing that they teach, the sinlessness of Mary and some of the bad stuff there. But here's the thing. This is not the most bizarre thing that they teach about Mary. And we read it earlier, but this is the fourth thing that they teach regarding Mary, the assumption of Mary, meaning that Mary had her own special rapture, basically, where she was just so righteous that God just took her straight into heaven, just like she did. Elijah and Enoch. And this is literally something that a pope just came up with one day. They have no scripture reference to back this up. I looked in multiple places. This is just a common teaching of the Catholic Church that literally has no scripture reference at all. None. I'm not kidding. You can go look it up and you can try to find anything because we obviously know that this is not recorded anywhere in the Bible. We know about Enoch, we know about Elijah, these are famous stories in the Bible, but this just idea that Mary is just caught up is found nowhere in Scripture, and even on Catholic websites, they all just reference the same thing that Pope Pius VII in 1950 just decided Mary was caught up in the clouds by herself for no reason. You know, just just came up with that idea. And it's honestly, it's just a Catholic fable and it's a fairy tale. It didn't happen. It never happened. And she's going to be caught up with all of us, just like everybody else will be. She didn't get her own 
separate special rapture. This is just another example of them trying to make a bigger deal out of her than she was. Though she was special, though she did have great characteristics and great qualities, she is not at all the level that they make her out to be. Now, the last part that I want to talk about isn't these uh, these four dogmas that they talk about of Mary, but this is the praying to Mary that the Catholics do, where they literally pray to Mary, and they do this specific thing. A lot of people that might be familiar with football know about the Hail Mary, where they just all run down to the end zone and try to win the game by just throwing it up there. Sometimes it works, other times it doesn't work at all. But um, that came because there was a Catholic quarterback named Roger Staubach that just threw the ball up. That was the first time the play was ever done. And he said, he said, Hail Mary. And they caught the ball and they won the game. So Mary interceded in a football game and won the Dallas Cowboys. I think it might have been a Super Bowl or something. So amazing what the power of Mary can do. But anyways, so you hear about Hail Marys and you hear about things that, uh, that they do there. Well, this is the prayer, because Catholics, they don't just pray prayers on their own. They pray prayers that are written out for them to pray, that they just repeat. So this is the Hail Mary prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. So that, that, that's what a Hail Mary is. And when you look down at Catholics and just their order of service and the things that they're supposed to follow along with, they don't just do this like one time a service. They do this multiple times, over and over and over and over again. Hailing Mary, giving her glory. Go to Romans chapter number 8. You're there in Romans chapter 5. You should be, I think. Romans chapter number 8, just a couple pages over. Here's the thing that they do here. You know, first of all, I think it's crazy to pray to Mary because the Bible doesn't instruct us to do that anywhere. But it's not just about the fact that they pray to Mary, but it's what they ask Mary to do is they ask her to pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. They're making, they're asking Mary to make intercession for them is what they're doing. Here's who we ask to make intercession, intercession for us. Romans chapter 8, verse number 26 it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Jesus Christ makes intercession for us, not Mary. This is another example of them taking something that Jesus does and something that Jesus gets the glory for and giving it to Mary and saying that Mary makes the intercession for us. When you look down at the Catholic order of service, there are way more prayers to Mary than there are prayers to Jesus. They literally elevate her above anything. When you look at the names of Catholic churches, I'm telling you, I didn't even know this. That, that every single town you go into, usually within like a 10-mile radius, there's a St. Mary's Catholic Church. And you know what? There's a St. Mary's Catholic Church in Sterling, and right along with it that most St. Mary's Catholic Church has is a St. Mary's Catholic School. You know, Usually you'll have other random Catholic churches, and they won't have the school, but it's always the St. Mary's that have the school. And they elevate her 
higher above any. One of the points that I was going to go to in the beginning that I decided not to, but Catholics believe that Mary is the best Christian that there ever was, higher than anyone, which is actually a direct contradiction of Scripture because Jesus Christ himself said that John the Baptist is the greatest of all born among women earlier. So Mary is born the same way as John was, but Jesus elevated John above her. So I don't know if Mary beats out the Apostle Paul or any of these other things, but there's no argument there because Jesus verbatim said John the Baptist is the best born among women. So at the end of the day, it's Jesus Christ that makes intercession for us. It's not Mary. It's Jesus Christ that is the mediator between God and man, not Mary. The Bible says that no man cometh unto the Father, but by him, not Mary. Now go to Philippians chapter number 2. Now here's the biggest problem that the Catholics are doing here. It's not that they are... Well, there's some really bad stuff that they're teaching here. What they're doing at the end of the day is they're taking emphasis of where it belongs on Jesus Christ, and they're giving it to someone else, who's a pretty good person, by the way, in the Virgin Mary. She's special. She was the virgin that God decided to choose. She is highly favored among women, and those are great characteristics, and they're great things to have. But she's not Jesus Christ. What made hers the most special at the end of the day is that she gave birth to Jesus Christ. That is who the focus needs to be on. And you say, well, what's the point of preaching this sermon in a Baptist church? Baptists don't ever get messed up on this stuff. Well, if anyone was paying attention through the Genesis series this past year, we looked through the Jews and all these different stories about the Jews. You know something Baptists are pretty famous for? Is giving a lot of glory to the Jews that belongs to Jesus Christ. They take the glory away all the time from stuff that's supposed to be given to Jesus Christ, and they give it to the Jews instead. They want to bless the Jews in hopes of being blessed physically and everything like that. And the truth is, if you bless the Jews a lot and get on their good side, you'll probably be blessed physically on this world. You have a lot of money. But you're not going to be blessed by God for doing that. Jesus Christ is the one that we need to give glory to. It's Jesus Christ that gets the glory, and it's him that did everything for us. Mary didn't die on the cross. She gave birth to the person that died on the cross. The Jews didn't die on the cross. It's from their lineage that comes the person that dies on the cross and pays for the sins of all mankind. They're not special anymore because they gave us what we needed out of them. And now the Bible says there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek, that we're all one in Christ Jesus. I, as a Christian, am just as special as anybody else in the world, regardless of who they am, if they are Christians also. We're one with Jesus Christ. We're all equal with each other. We're one in Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate unity. When you go to any event, if it's a Christian event and there's other saved people there, you can walk up to someone, and I don't care how much of an introvert you are or how much of an extrovert they are, no matter how uncomfortable you are, that is your brother or sister in Christ, and you know them, and you click like that. Because you have immediate unity with them in Jesus Christ. That's not something like anything else the world has to offer. You know, we can be adamant football fans, or we can be into, you know, anything. We can have unity in so many different things. We can have unity in cars that we like, 
unity in Nerf guns that we like, unity in all kinds of different things. But the ultimate unity is Jesus Christ. There's nothing more that we can unite together on than Jesus Christ. Because we all have different things that we like in this church specifically. We all have different views on all kinds of things in the world. We have different tastes of food that we like. We have different um, hobbies that we like to enjoy. We come from different backgrounds from all different parts of this country, but we're united on one thing specifically, that being Jesus Christ. We're not united on the Virgin Mary. She had part in giving birth to Jesus Christ, which is who we're we're unified under, Jesus Christ. He's the most important. He's the one that gets the glory. And look in Philippians chapter number 2. In verse number 5, we'll close right here. Philippians chapter number 2, in verse number 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love the story of the virgin birth, and I think it's an incredible story, and I think there's a lot to it. But here's the greatest story of it all. Zoom, take the magnifying glass out a little further and look at the whole big picture. The virgin birth is just one small part of a story that goes all the way from Genesis chapter 1 when you have Jesus the creator of the whole world, who eventually sees his people fall in the flood of Noah, floods them all out, has Noah. They start over from scratch, and then they all get scattered out at the Tower of Babel. We see all the different historical books that happen, the different kings, the different kingdoms, the wars, the pestilences. We've got Jesus Christ eventually coming down to Jerusalem performing all these miracles, coming to the Jews, being rejected by them, dying on the cross, paying for the sins of all mankind, and now it's available. The person that created the world, that created death, that created life, that created everything, came like a servant and died on the cross to pay for all of our sins. He's the one that should get all the glory. Everything we have in this life The Bible says every good gift cometh from above. We give glory to God. We don't give glory to people that got him there along the way. I think that it's a great, I think the virgin birth is a fantastic story. And I hate even acting like I'm trying to take something away from that because I'm not at all. I'm irritated at Catholics that have perverted that story and turned it into something that it's not. Because it's not Mary being out to be some deity-like figure. It's her giving birth to the Son of God. That is everything we could ever imagine. He gives us all that we have, and we should not rob any glory from him. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The only person that it can't be robbery to be equal with God is Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the word that became flesh. 
Mary can't be lifted up by the Catholics as someone that's equal with God, or even if it's just a step below God, she's not that righteous. She's the virgin that gave birth. She'll be in heaven with us the way that all the rest of us are, but that's because she believed on the name of the Son of God. Just like we all believe on the name of the Son of God, and we can all be one with Jesus Christ. So give the glory to God. Give him all the glory. Don't get scattered about giving it to the Jews or giving it to Mary or giving it to any pastor or preacher that influences your life. Give God all the glory in everything that we do. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this day and all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for coming on dying on the cross for us, and I pray that you'd help us all not to forget that, and you'd help us all to love you and be thankful for all that you've done there, Lord. I just pray that you'd be with us as we go throughout this week, be with the pastor as he travels home, and I pray that everything went well in Ohio today while he was there, and just pray that you'd be with this church and help us to do great things this year, giving all the glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.